Attention Limerick. Have you seen my dog? Mauler, a foxy Tibetan bull mastiff wolf whippet mix web missing from my yard at 9 o'clock this morning. Last seen driving a black OD and clearing a group of small fellas out of it in little car park. We are heartbroken as a family and terrified. Mauler is a dwarf of a dog, but he also has severe behavioural issues since coming off the drink. Do not try and talk to him, you won't get through to him. And if you're wearing black or white items of clothing, don't go near him. He'll take you for a piebald horse and go for your throat. If you have any information about my dog, don't hesitate to contact me, John Murphy. I'm John Murphy, right? Via Donny Scott Solicitors. Marlow is more than just a member of my family. He's also the owner of my car and godfather to my child. Marlow, if you're listening, please come home. Okay, let's bring my bastard home. Because this is an episode about special effects, do you have any party pieces or any hidden talents? I can make my uh, shoulder blades kind of pop out on my back. I think that's called a disability. (laughs) (laughs) What's yours? I can do impressions, and uh, one of my impressions is uh, Tangina from the Poltergeist. You know, a little woman. Uh, Yeah, I do, yeah. I'd love to hear it. Okay, so uh, here we go. Here we go. I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast. I hate the way I say hello. Uh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> It's like, hello, hello. You just, you just hate greeting people in general. It's just like, what? I hate, just like, huh? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Hello and welcome. I can't do it. This is where I'm going to struggle now. Okay, head in the game, head in the game, head in the game. Hello and welcome to the best movie. Stop it, Will. Kevin lost the ability. What's, what's, so, what's wrong with you? I can't say. Hello. I can't say. Hello and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host, Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. And I'm joined once again by my co-host of three films and a Christmas special, Will Collins. That has to be fine. That is absolutely it. You've nailed it. I'm not going to reveal the fact that it's taken you at least seven efforts to get to, <laughs> to get over that. But you did it. You got there. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, this is why you need special effects supervisors to make things look good on set. <laughs> so, Will, this week, we hope that we've got new listeners joining us again. So we're going to need um, to catch them up and... Uh, fill them in on what the premise of the show is and what we do here each week. So take it away. Yeah, I'm, I'll take it away. And shoot uh, it. <laughs> take it around the back of the shade. And shoot it. 
And uh, what, what we have is that we basically, every week, we randomly select a topic from a big wheel. And uh, these topics uh, vary from action scene to best sex scene to musical scene and everything in between. And it's kind of great, Kevin, because this is our first time recording an episode after we actually have launched our first episode, after our first episode has gone out into the, the podcast verse. Isn't that, isn't that mad? It is. And we're two months ahead and we want to stay two months ahead because we're yeah. scared of what people are going to do to us if they catch up to us. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just delighted that I've confirmed that you're not a voice in my head. And I'm coming up here and just talking to myself. And uh, people are confirming that because people are listening, which is great. I'm not insane. I've got bad news for you, Will. This is a voice in your head. (laughs) I'm the devil on your shoulders. (laughs) What? (laughs) This is all part of your therapy. (laughs) So this week we're we're dealing with SFX scenes, special effects scenes. And I don't know about you, Will, but when I was like looking into the the history of the special effects and sort of trying to figure out, you know, where am I going to land in um, the pantheon of great practical effects. This is going to be, I think, another nostalgia sort of Mm. heavy episode because the stuff that's like done in camera on the day, um, that stuff is like, it's from our childhood again. It's like the 80s and 90s and everything uh, before the advent of like CGI came in. So this is one of these topics where this to me is what drew me into the movies more than anything. It was like the the movie magic moments. It was, it was it was like stuff where you felt like a film set was a magical place where, you know, literal magicians were at work. Hello, I'm Steven Spielberg. What, what was that show? There was a making of movie magic. Movie magic. Yeah. You see, for over a hundred years, filmmakers have been using sound stages like this to create the stuff that dreams are made of. Special effects, astonishing moments, movie magic. Don't just tell a story. They thrill, they dazzle, sometimes even startle. But done well, they never fail to take you over. Yeah, movie magic. And I think there was another one called Lights, Camera, Action. I think it was shows you tune in on a Sunday evening and watch movie magic and, and see how they did how they blew up like the, the White House for Independence Day or how they um, mm. made the bus jump the, the bridge in speed well one of, one of the amazing effects you know one of the amazing effects that's, that still stands out to me and was one that really impressed me very early on was, um, was the skeleton battle scene in, in Jason and the Argonauts got actors on set fighting a squadron of of these uh, stop motion skeletons which have been created in miniature like you know in miniature form and, and matched to the the actors on set and oh my god it's like still to this day like over 60 years later it's incredible and that was all animated by one guy ray harryhausen mm, it is incredible because it's the ingenuity and it's sort of the craftsmanship this sounds like fanciful and like you know where you're scripting your own life and stuff but uh, going to see Jurassic Park. Boy, no head being right all the time. And obviously Jurassic Park just being Jurassic Park, just an incredible film that marries visual effects and uh, special effects with like massive big animatronics and great CG for the time that still stands up to this day and, uh, and works. Yeah. But I remember walking out of the cinema and you know, back in those days, like the Capital Cinema in Cork, which has become like a mm-hmm. character, recurring character in this podcast. 
but you'd have to queue up for like two hours yeah. to get in. But you'd also, you'd have this very slow sort of like um, trudge out of the cinema where it's like disembarking a plane, packed out. And I remember walking up the aisle mm-hmm. slowly, the music is playing behind me and thinking, uh, well, what age was I? I must have been 11 or 12, but I was thinking to myself, I want to mm-hmm. do that. I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. I've been obsessed with films, you know, throughout my childhood, wow. but that was the moment where I felt, no, it's done. It's a done deal now. I have to do that. I had the ex- exact same moment of epiphany, <laughs> but it was at home watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the opening scene in the, in the, the Obi-Wan nightclub. And it was the first time I watched the sequence where I realised... You know when Indiana Jones goes behind the, the, the bad guys are shooting at him and he goes behind the, this big large ornamental shield and he grabs a sword and he like cuts the ropes and drops down and they start firing and the bullets start dinging off the shield and the shield rolls across the nightclub. I remember having a moment of epiphany where I realised that this just wasn't all made up on the day. That it was, you know, that people were behind it. And I remember just having that exact moment where... I used those words. I Today I used that word where I went, I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. Wow! Holy smoke! Class landing! Short round. Step on it. So we ended up becoming screenwriters, which, you know, nobody should want to do that. Yeah. That's something. <laughs> the least sexy. No one's making documentaries. <laughs> behind the scenes documentaries of us is hunched over keyboards it's just it's yeah. not happening <laughs> for me special features on DVDs got really boring when uh, the documentaries became about guys hunched over desks pointing their mouse and saying we did this and we did that which is basically what writing is <laughs> but it's also the thing like with special effects where they're the things which can be a real barrier for newer generations to accept you sort of look at it and you think that's fake, that's mock, and it doesn't feel real. But I have a different reaction to that, which is sometimes something can look fake and you know it's not real. You know it's like a guy in a suit or what have you. But you know there's sort of an artistry to it, that something's been created and you sort of have a, a reaction to the actual creation itself. There's, there's texture and there's, yeah, there's that kind of verisimilitude to it. So what are the ones, Will, that... that popped into your head when you were thinking about this? Uh, Jason Argonauts was one that immediately popped into my head. But the another one that's kind of like, of course, it's, it's, it's obviously tinged with nostalgia, but I have to go to Labyrinth. You remind me of the babe. babe? Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. You do. Remind me of the babe. I think the practical effect works and effects work in that is incredible, and particularly the creation of the little uh, goblin character Huggle. I'm Huggle. Do you know where the door to the labyrinth is? Oh, maybe. Well, where is it? Like that was an astounding achievement. Like it, it took five people to bring that character to life. Yeah, it just feels like it's a guy wearing prosthetics, not sort of like um, an actual yeah. a puppet that's got all this sort of like machinations behind the face and stuff. You know, you talk about a younger generation kind of poo-pooing, you know, all the older stuff, but Hoggle, the creation of Hoggle's character, still stands to this day. It holds up its quality. You feel that that's a real goblin. That's what I thought. There was one person, obviously a small actress inside, doing the physical performance of the arms and legs and the head movement, but then to the doing the actual eyes and all that sort of stuff. Like there was four different performers um, doing all that, and they all, every one of them, all those five performers, had to rehearse and work, work in synchronicity 
to kind of like make the line sell perfectly and give that character life and breathe life into it. And it was all done like in camera. The performance was happening right there with the voice actor as well. Was The voice actor was the person who was operating the actual, his mouth, we'll say, you know. So for me, that was one. Yeah. I just, I'm still blown away at how the craftsmanship and uh, the kind of the synergy of all these performers that have to do it live in camera. I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. It's a fantastic film. And a fantastic kind of like practical effect. I have another pick, Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Uh, This Mm. is Houston. Uh, Say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Specifically, the practical effect about that I love is that to create the illusion of uh, them being in zero gravity, you know, up in their space shuttle, is they went and they created a set inside the Vomit Comet, which is Mm. a plane they use, that NASA uses to train astronauts how to deal with, you know, zero gravity. And I, you know, again, it's one of those things that I watched the actual raw footage of them on, on set and they only had like 15 seconds. But like for those 15 seconds, Everything is in zero gravity and it had to happen in camera right then and right there. For me, I just go, oh man, wouldn't that have been brilliant? I don't think you'd be invited on set as a writer, uh, Will. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think so. (laughs) I think I might be a a, a hazardous object to have. But yeah, that's the stuff where you'd watch it as a kid and you'd think like, that's magical. I want to be on that set. I want to make movies. I want to experience that. And another thing about that, those shots is that the camera, not only are the actors in zero gravity, but the actual camera people and the camera itself is in zero gravity. So it creates a natural, there's a handheld natural zero gravity camera being used. And it wasn't, they've never done it before like this. So like, you know, it's not like a locked camera, but so the the cameraman is literally just holding onto it by one little handle at the end as it floats around the place and just grabs it before gravity kicks back in again after 10 seconds. And it just, that's amazing. And that, that's why for me, Apollo 13 is still one of the, the best films set in space because of the the reality of what they managed to achieve using practical effects and movie magic. Hello, Houston. This is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. Mm, that's a great pick. So I'm going to I'm going to like Buzzfeed blast you now with um, a list of mine. Because I could have gone one of 20 different ways with this and and I wouldn't have any regrets about those picks. But um, oh. King Kong, like the original King Kong, The Thing, obviously. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course. that big uh, polystyrene ball that's chasing them. <laughs> American Werewolf in London. And that's still horrific. There's the chestburster scene in Alien. Too terrifying. what it must have been like to experience one of those movies for the first time without the ubiquity of uh, trailers or um, the internet uh, or sort of like 10 ways explaining what this scene means. Mm. To just go in completely blind and hearing that there's something you have to see in that film and uh, just experiencing the chestburster and um, what, how that must have melted heads at, at that time. And when, when imagine like you, what I love about the filmmaking there is that Again, they knew that how shocking it was when they were shooting that. So the actors knew something was going to happen, but didn't know, didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. Or <laughs> it's so clever. So the reaction they captured on camera is a very real reaction, you know, from the performers. And again, it's about reality. It's about you know engineering 
engineering a kind of a real tangible thing. Yeah, like yeah. A good side effect of practical effects. You get good performances. You get more real performance. Uh, okay, so you've got like, you've got The Exorcist. Yeah. The bed levitating. The power of Christ compels you! Oh, does it? Does it compel me? The power of Christ compels you! Is the power of Christ compelling me? Is that what's happening? The power of Christ compels you! Guess what? It's not that compelling. The old age makeup on Max von Sydow. I mean, that's a special effect in itself. How old was he? Like, was he a lot younger? I I think he was in in his 30s, but they... They matched it so well that, wow. you know, you look at that now and you think that Max Fonsito was always in his 70s. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually what I, I had the illusion. I grew up thinking Max Fonsito has been old for a long time. You know, he has. Just grew into that makeup. Wow. And now he's the oldest he's ever been. He's dead. Oh, yeah. Poltergeist, Ghostbusters, Close Encounters, Blade Runner, The Flying Cars, mm. um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know, the forced perspective stuff with the hobbits yeah. where they made them look really small. Yeah, that was going to be one of my picks. I love the forced perspective stuff. That, for me, is real magic. I love that. You know, selling this scale and selling this world. But I will say, though, the one special effect in that film that I hate are those disgusting hairy feet that the hobbits were. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah, they're pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't they just shave them? <laughs> so... This was difficult for me because it's like, do you go the, the route of picking like uh, what you consider to be objectively the best that nobody else is going to um, to have any issues with? Or do you go the subjective route and go with the one which affected you the most? And I really, as I say, couldn't pick. Mm-hmm. So um, I did a phone a friend thing, like uh, who wants to be a millionaire and called in our very first guest expert. So... I called Dan Martin, who is um, a special effects designer, and he's worked on films like Possessor and Color Out of Space, and he's currently up for a Chainsaw Award. Well, he's up for two at the moment, Um, so fingers crossed for that. But I called Dan, so uh, I wanted to pick pick Dan's brains, and uh, I'm going to play for you now my interview with Dan. So, Dan, I have never interviewed anyone before, and... um, in order to do this, I sort of looked up sort of questions that were online. So my first question to you is, uh, tell me about a time when you've demonstrated leadership. <laughs> and the second part of that question is, what do you consider to be your greatest strengths? Uh, I, I think that it probably doesn't work in my favour every time. But the way in which I have demonstrated strong leadership is that I don't have a filter and so will suggest mad shit to directors. And sometimes it means producers hate me because I'm basically pitching for work that they hadn't budgeted for. And sometimes uh, it's like just crazy shit on the last minute at set like on set at the last minute i'll be like oh what if we did this and and then everyone fucking hates me because i've just added <laughs> some time to the day <laughs> you worked on human centipede 2 um yes obviously there were no practical effects on that film but what was it like <laughs> shooting it well i mean like any documentary uh it's always very hard not to intervene <laughs> um, oh my god yeah it was you know it was mad uh was it smelly it was well it was but not in the way that you'd expect uh i (laughs) was in charge of among other things uh making up all of the fake shit and (laughs) that had to be food grade because uh it was going in mouth 
And so I was using a modification of the recipe that Pasolini developed for his film Salo, 120 Days of Sodom. Wow. And as you can probably guess, there's a lot of chocolate in that. So actually the whole set smelt. There's chocolate and marmalade in it. So the whole set smelt like a Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> The the two difficult things when you're dealing with fake shit on set is one, convincing people to eat it, and two, getting them to stop eating it when they've found out how delicious it is. Oh, there we go. There you go. <laughs> this week, I am doing um, best practical effects. And obviously, I watch these things as an audience member, and I don't really have the expertise to sort of judge these things on a technical level. But I was wondering what it is that you look for in a great uh, practical effects scene seeing as that's the, the realm in which you work. Absolutely. I mean, it's really, it's very hard to uh, to pinpoint it just because it's such a broad uh, field. There are so many things that count as practical effects, whether it's prosthetic makeup effects or, like, you know, environmental effects, scenic uh, camera trickery. All of those things kind of, like, work together. And so I, when you first asked me to do this, I put together like a long list of things that came to mind, whether they were formative for me mm. or things that I loved or things that like made a huge difference to the way I saw effects and film effects. Um, but to be honest, as far as like perfection in in-camera practical effects goes, it's got to be the head operation in Terminator 2. Isn't that a deleted scene as well? It's not actually in the film. It's in. It's definitely in a version of the film, but by this point, I've got so many versions of that movie and I've seen it so many times, yeah. I kind of forget what's in what version. Rotate the two locking cylinders counterclockwise. Yeah, it's one of those great deleted scenes, but that's that's an incredible one. That's sort of like using the... the isn't it Linda Hamilton's twin sister? Hamilton's twin sister, who also uh, features very heavily in the T-1000 sequence at the end when he's pretending uh, no, to be Sarah Connor. But yeah, that shot in, um, in Terminator 2 when she's pulling the chip out of Arnie's head, and it's an, uh, an over-shoulder shot. Uh, well, it starts off as a close-up on the skull with her rootling around inside the head, like way deeper than you could do with a traditional prosthetic. Uh, and then the camera pulls up a little bit and tilts and it becomes an over-shoulder two-shot of them in the mirror, but over their shoulders. And it's done with the real Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger in a, a reverse-built version of the set on the other side of a window dressed to look like a mirror in a fake wall with Linda Hamilton's sister playing the back of Sarah Connor and a puppet playing Arnie's head for the operation in the foreground. And it's unfucking believable <laughs> I was listening to Will Wisher um, on a podcast just recently, and he was talking about that being one of his favourite scenes, and he was really disappointed when it got cut because it, it sort of signifies this transition as well for John, which says, like, if you won't listen to me, how do you expect the rest of the world to take me seriously if I'm supposed to be this great new leader? Look, Mom, if I'm ever supposed to be this great military leader, maybe you should start listening to my leadership ideas once in a while. So my own mother won't. How do you expect anyone else to? But they, they caught it for time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I th I'd say that's perfection. But as far as things that, like... So I got into special effects before I really got into film. Like, I didn't have a lot of access to film as a kid. Um, my my mum had a very uh, sort of authoritarian opinion of my access to television. So I'd see, like, 
TV shows and cartoons and stuff around friends' houses, but I've seen very few films. Um, I went to the cinema a few times. Um, Labyrinth was obviously a big deal for me. But like as far as horror stuff goes, which was very much what I was drawn to in my youth, um, mm. it was more about reference books. My school library had a big, thick book on on monsters in film that I uh, that I'd sort of look through and I was obsessed with, and I'd photocopy pages out of it and take them home and. And all that kind of stuff. So I, I'd seen stills of a lot of this stuff um, before I'd ever seen the movies. And then when I when I got to see the films, I was already like going as hard and fast as I could at getting this stuff because my only access to it was semi illicit anyway because it was without the the consent of my parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that immediately fell me into the group like you know threw me into the social groups who were trading like the video nasties and all that kind of stuff so i saw these amazing movies that a lot of my my direct contemporaries at that point in my life had no idea existed and so i was seeing these amazing things like the very first thing that came into my head when you asked me um was Ruggiero diodato's cut and run from 1985 Mm. I mean that's that's a like you know Diodato probably most famous for Cannibal Holocaust cut and run tread some of the same territory it's you know still like a lot of it's set in the jungle he made it five six years later it, it does a dual narrative between the urban jungle crime and and the uh, and the actual jungle but it has a scene in it that was lifted wholesale for Bone Tomahawk a few years ago oh God Almighty well that scene that sequence is horrendous. <laughs> That scene Jesus. comes from Cut and Run, and if you can imagine me, at, you know, in, in 1985, I mean, obviously not quite 1985, I didn't see it, I didn't go to the premiere or anything, but, you know, I, I got hold of this, this like, bootleg VHS that had this grainy effect in it, and it, abs- like, my jaw was on the floor, it's like, fuck, okay, so we're allowed to do this kind of thing, like, this is within the realm of special yeah. effects, and I've never seen anything like it at that point. There seems to be this sort of uh, running thread through a lot of people that work in the industry and, and do what we do, but it seems to be being warped at an early age. Yeah. <laughs> Just the power of cinema sort of gets hooked into you, and you sort of, you're drawn to it, it's like, I want to do that, I want to do that that dangerous, exciting, magical thing that's on screen that is just causing all these emotions in me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that blowing your mind. When I was when I was young, one of the three VHS cassettes we had in the house, we had uh, an Asterix movie, um, uh, a series of short films set to opera music, and then my parents had a copy of Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. <laughs> and I would set my alarm. Did you watch any kids' for like films? Three them. <laughs> Very few. <laughs> I'd set my alarm clock for three in the morning when my new my parents would be asleep, and I'd go downstairs and I'd watch the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, like three or four times a week for months. Oh my god, <laughs> that'll do it. That'll, that'll rewire your brain. I love that film. I still love that film. So, what sort of like, um, what sort of turns you off? I suppose in a in a uh, a practical effect scene, like because you you'll. I think people are very hard on CG effects in films. Um, we sort of can tell when it's sort of floaty yeah. and it doesn't work. Uh, we're much more forgiving of practical effects. Like you can tell that that's a man in a suit or it's... Um, yeah. there's, some, there's something about it, there's a there's a weight to it and a visceralness well, of it that we forgive it. Yeah, it's that even if it's not the thing it's purporting to be, it's still real. It's still a tangible thing. Yeah. 
and and that's why like if vfx fails even slightly with cgi specifically but if cgi fails even slightly mm. then it's not real you just know it's it, all it, I mean, genuinely yeah there's 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 full artifice and you don't even need to be able to recognize exactly why it doesn't work like the layperson might not know that the blacks haven't been matched properly or that like you know there's a, a matte line around something they may not be able to specify exactly what the problem is but their brain goes, well, I don't like this. This is this is not correct. It's like that scene in Nightmare on Elm Street where Freddy's tongue sticks out of the phone into Nancy's mouth. And yeah. you can tell it's a it's a rubber tongue, but just the fact that something has gone into a moat just makes you sort of recoil. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is that when you're dealing with something tangible, with something real, then the uncanny works in your favour mm. for special effects. But when you're working in the realm of animation, digital animation specifically purporting to be real then the uncanny will throw you out of a Yeah, scene. yeah. Like, I still get a huge amount of enjoyment from very bad special effects. Yeah, there's, there's sort of a playfulness to it. It's sort of, you're seeing somebody, uh, imagination on screen, somebody has made that. Yeah. I remember seeing the, the behind-the-scenes footage of um, The Thing and uh, the actors talking about they used to love going down to the, to the workshop to see this sort of grotesque but beautiful creations that Rob Bottin was making. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bottin was on my list as well. Uh, the uh, the 180-degree radial track headshot in Robocop. You probably don't think I'm a very nice guy, <laughs> do you? Buddy, I think you're slime. Is another example of an amazingly brave and, and well-thought-out special effect. Give the man a hand! He's already been shot a bunch of times. He's, he's lost limbs. He's... he's very almost dead anyway and it's just before the headshot that kills him uh and it starts on his face and he's rocking back and forward screaming in pain it starts on his face and it does a 180 radial track around behind him until it's until it's Mm. behind murphy shooting across him off to bodica and bodica fires his gun and the back of murphy's head blows out and he falls over Uh, okay let's get out of here but again, it blows out in, with real depth, a way mm. you could never do with an actual actor. And at the time, I don't think I realised it, but it's a puppet. Murphy, you know, is never, the actor's never in that shot. It's even at the beginning when you're on his face, like nowadays you'd start, you know, someone would probably start on an actor and they'd hide a transition to the puppet in the in the radial move. They'd, they'd put in a hidden edit. But, but Bettine, incredibly bold, has a, a full expressive puppet uh, he knows exactly what the limits of his uh, of of his materials are, and he presents something that works incredibly well. I think it still stands up today, and you get this amazing shot. But you're so like in the moment at that point anyway. You don't think for a second that that's not a real person. No, you just feel it. You can just yeah, you can... absolutely. I mean, I will say that I had a conversation with someone about head explosions in like general the other day, and I said all the best head explosions you've seen were done with a shotgun, with rather than with. A <laughs> Like that that one and the one that Savini did for Lustig's Maniac, where Savini ca- cameos in the car and he uh, and he's he's with a woman in the car. Savini's playing the guy, so Savini has life cast himself to yeah. play, you know, for the for the ex- for the exploding head. Um, Joe Spinell, who's playing the maniac, jumps up onto the bonnet of the car, loses his footing, and falls off with a loaded shotgun. Which you know you can just about see him losing his footing in one of those shots. They're shooting this in New York, where you're not allowed shotguns; like it's a no shotgun state. So you know they're breaking the law. 
they get all the preamble stuff and then they're like, okay, so we're going to do it. We're ready. And they fire the shotgun for real through the windscreen of the car into this fake head that Tom Savini is filled with fake blood and clam chowder. The second they go, we got it, we got it. One, the, the gun goes in the back of one car. They drive all off in different directions. They abandon the car with this blown up body in the in the seat uh, in a lockup for several days to make sure they're not going to get like scout, like got by the police when they go and pick it up. And then they mm. go and pick it up, you know, a week later, full of rotten summer heat clam chowder. <laughs> so really, what I'm sort of <laughs> so really what I'm sort of picking up from this is that. Great practical effects don't have to be invisible. You know, the way that CGI effects, when they really are successful, you don't sort of notice them. But a great practical effect scene, you just, you remember it, you feel it. And even if it's got sort of like uh, little flaws about it or, or things where you can go, well, that's not real, that's that's fake. The fact that it's so well done and executed, it's like you go to a magic show and you know that the magician is, is doing tricks that it's not really happening. But it's the Most it's the trick, <laughs> yeah. It's the fa- <laughs> well, but it's the fact that it's um that it still woes you and you don't know how they did it. That it sort of it, it leaves that impression on you. Well, it's yeah, it's appropriate that you make that connection because I was a magic nerd before I was an effects nerd, <laughs> and effects owes a huge debt to to magic. Um, yeah, the the origins all those of forced perspective, silent era stuff. Exactly, but even like the old double exposure stuff, where Melier would mm. like run across screen with a black bag on his head, and then rewind the film and run across screen with a black suit on, but he'd stop halfway, so it looked like he carried on and the head stopped. There's an incredible transformation in a in a black and white film, and I forget the name of it now, but it's a woman that turns into a crone. You're the actor, and it's stunning. <laughs> It's a legitimate special effect. So they filmed through a piece of gradiated glass, which had a colour, like a colour filter on it, like filming through one lens of a pair of 3D glasses. Um, and the actress had two lots of makeup on. Obviously, this could only be done in uh, in black and white. She had a, let's say, red and green. Uh-huh. I don't know for certain that it was red and green. But she had one set of, like a beauty makeup in red and a crone makeup in green. And so when you film through a red lens, you only see the green makeup. Oh. And then as you slide the glass across and it transitions from green to red, then you see the other makeup instead. That's ingenious. The fact that they were coming up with that back then, it's incredible. Absolutely brilliant. What What's the thing, Dan? I'm curious. What's the thing that you wish audiences, but also like filmmakers, you know, because you, sometimes you're working with, you know, first time filmmakers or, or people that don't have as much sort of experience doing um, or using practical effects. What's the one thing that you wish people knew in general about what it is that you do i don't know i mean i'm not like for the audience i'm happy for them to go in in the dark like it like you said it's like a magic trick and the less you know about it and you know obviously i undermine this somewhat by talking constantly (laughs) but (laughs) and for example having just explained how you do do an effect but but i do think that often not knowing i mean with gore effects and horror effects often the oh my goodness i can't believe i just saw that moment is as valuable like the concept is as valuable as the execution um as far as working with like first time directors go just that it's going to take time yeah <laughs> like not not just on set either like to be honest the the more experienced you get the less time it takes on set because the more you have figured out how to have like soak up all that time in pre production but the things are going to take time ahead of time and that one what might seem like a tiny change is never a tiny change. Will I tell you what where my head is at and yeah. see what you think of this being like my favourite scene in a movie, uh, a practical effects scene? So I was thinking it would be... 
where my head is at what do you think of that does that sort of like feel like a basic choice because so far all my no. choices on this podcast have been basic <laughs> i mean i think that there's with with film there isn't really a thing such a thing as basic like i you know maybe with writing or with uh like a director choice you can like not you personally but one can have a have a preference that uh, betrays a lack of uh like maybe a broader experience but actually i think with something like this it's so like they're so impactful it's so yeah. it's so much about the moment that that's a perfectly valid choice <laughs> i'm not expecting you to to turn up and bust out like uh, to, to run you through some others on my long list uh, go for it yeah the, definitely the the triple impaling from uh, uh, Toshihara Kida's Evil Dead Trap from 1988. Deep cut. Uh, which was done by uh, Shinichi Osaka, who was like, he made Godzilla suits and did loads of kaiju movies. He was like a great Japanese effects artist. But then he also did... See, I thought those Godzilla suits looked very fake, Dan. <laughs> Some of the... Like, you go back to the beginning, obviously, they're, they're a little clumsy. But one of the things I love about that franchise is watching them refine the processes watching them get better at miniatures, watching them get better at miniature photography. What- Until Roland Emmerich perfected it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. Who knew that what Godzilla was missing all along was a cloaca? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, you've got two from Argento films, which blew me away when I was younger. Uh, you've got the arm coming off in uh, Tenebrae from 75. Uh, and then you've got the uh, needles under the eyes from Opera in '87. Oh, uh, the horrible. like to stop her from blinking while her boyfriend sort of executed. Yeah, and the again, how did they do that? Well, they, they, they literally had needles in her eyes, didn't they? Yes, but and I was about to say, and you know, once you've seen it, like you know exactly how it's done. But <laughs> but evidently, so those shots are flipped. The uh, the the tape is on the top eyelid. And it's not stuck to the eyelid, it's stuck just past the eye, so that the actress can can blink and it doesn't move the needles. But they just they just edited out all the blinks and flipped the footage. Oh, okay. So if you look, the corners of the eyes curve off the, the bottom, the tear ducts wow. curve off. That's brilliant. <laughs> Listen, Dan, this was my phone a friend sort of like expert, guest expert uh, opinion, and you've definitely come through for me. So um, I'm going to go back to Will now and, uh, Thank you, ma'am. and drop some knowledge on him. And tell him he's got to watch Evil Dead Trap. <laughs> Definitely, that's right up Will Street, I can tell you. <laughs> Thanks a million, Dan. Thanks, man. I love Dan. Dan should be like yeah. our third co-host. He's great. He's really great. Oh, uh, Terminator 2 as well. I was surprised that he came up with that. I thought it was going to be some sort of like creature effect. It's a great pick as well. Which is a trick shot as well. It's like using mirrors and stuff. It's a fa- it's a fantastic effect, and it's one of those moments when you see it done, when you see it like uh, the the execution of it, and it really just boggles your mind. You go, "Wow!" I love that he mentioned RoboCop. Oh, that's one of those films which, when I think back on it, I think like, "What was I watching?" That is probably the most violent um, film that I'd seen as a kid. That felt like it was marketed towards me because he's still called RoboCop. It was a cartoon when I was a kid. But, um, Kevin, 
Kevin, man, listen yeah. to me. I, 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 I'll quickly, I'll quickly tell you about my experience with Robocop. I walked into, I remember going into my local video library on a Friday night and in the new release section, there in front of me was like a amazing looking cover for this really cool superhero called Robocop for 150. And I took it home and um, I thought he was like, I just thought it was like a cool superhero dude. And um, I, <laughs> when, the and this was going to be one of my picks for effects actually. When we got to the scene in the in the um, boardroom where they're introducing Ed 209, the kind of like the, the, the pre-Robocop uh, version, um, the executive uh, hands a gun, tells a junior executive to point a gun at Ed 209. And oh my God, Ed 209 just like, just blasts him. And he <laughs> mu- they must have like put like a hundred squibs into that actor <laughs> and my brain was just like melted as well I just I, I and I truly believe that I watched the director's cut of that film because it went on far too long it went on way way too long <laughs> and I was just traumatised by that scene do you know what my favourite special effect though is in Robocop it's when the head of OCP falls out the window oh and he's got long arms <laughs> He's got, like, he's got the big long arms. You're thinking that is rubbish. Turn it off. I don't want to watch it. It was the end of the film, so you were lucky. It was like going the worst effect is the last one. It's crap. <laughs> and it's still, if you watch the director's cut, I still think that that is quite potent. Even though you know you can see the kind of the rubberiness of the effects. But it's real. It's on camera. And the the actual Robocop suit is amazing. And how they did that. And, you know, it just looks cool. And the, Anyway, I could talk all day about Robocop. Love it. It's great. Excuse me, Robo. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? That are alive. You are coming with me. It must be so hard to act against, like, a tennis ball or what have you. I remember being on the set of Grabbers. And uh, obviously, we didn't build a 35-foot, you know, um, yeah. intergalactic octopus. But uh, it was <laughs> no way. We built some of the smaller ones, but um, I remember we were in um, we were outside in a Baltic winter. It was absolutely freezing. That was the time when airports were closed because of the snow. It was unheard of at the time. In fact, we had to we lost days of yeah. the, of the production because of snowfall, um, and we never got them back. <laughs> but you know, but I remember being on set. And uh, we had the rain machines going and it was freezing. Wow. And uh, Richard Coyle, who played O'Shea, the, the protagonist of the film, was um, standing out there at like midnight with the rain machines going down on him. And he was saying like, um, the eye line, where's the eye line? And somebody had to run back in and say, it's there and point. And then he had to look up and uh, pretend that this thing was coming towards him. And uh, yeah, so I can just imagine how difficult it is for actors to sort of create the world in your head mm-hmm. rather than responding to what's in front of you. Because that's what great acting is, isn't it? It's like mm-hmm. reacting. But when you are having to create the thing that you have to react to, you're slightly inside your own head. You're not naturally... Um, bouncing off something. Yeah, it's a very. It was actually again connecting back into Roger Rabbit last week. 
um, they they complemented Bob Hoskins because once you you know once you have a physical object to focus your eye line on, let's say if something's let's say if you if you put your hand out in front of your face, you can you your eye line can focus on your hand. But as soon as you take away your hand, your eye your eye focus is going to go to the far wall. But Bob Hoskins managed to hold his his focus. He managed to do it. He I think he I don't know. He was an incredible performer. And he really sold that. He was just excellent. Yeah. I think he nearly had a breakdown doing that film as well, didn't he? <laughs> now Roger is his name. Laughter is his game. Come on, you dope, untie his rope and watch him go insane. I wouldn't blame him. <laughs> so, I'm sort of like dancing around the houses here because I feel that I would be denying my DNA if I didn't mention this film. Because of all the films that I've ever mentioned on this podcast, this is the one where the minute that a scene suggestion comes up, I immediately like go through the Rolodex in my mind of thinking, can I mention this film? Can I mention this one? Because it's the one that, without question, uh, and some people are going to like roll their eyes at this and it's kind of naff, but without question, if this film didn't exist or if I didn't see this film at the time that I saw it, I wouldn't have become a screenwriter at all. I wouldn't have sort of, I wouldn't have had the love affair with film, uh, this abusive love affair with film. It, it just it means so much to me that if people criticise the film, even if I can understand where they're coming from, it hurts me. It makes me feel a bit like, don't do that. It's such a lovely, joyous, wonderful film. Like you can't criticise it. That's not fair. That's like kicking a puppy. I'm so curious. <laughs> But it is the film that means the most to me and uh, the one that is my go-to sort of comfort watch that I've got like a handful of them. Midnight Run is another. But the one that I sort of like try to save up and use on special occasions is 1978's Richard Donner's Superman the Movie. Excuse me. That's a bad outfit. Brilliant. Oh, I'm so glad you picked that. I'm so glad you picked that. You believe a man can fly is what they said. God, look up there. What the hell is that? Easy, miss. I've got you. you you've got me? Who's got you? <laughs> oh, I, I can't believe it. I just, I just cannot believe it. He got her. But the reason that I sort of, like, love that film so much is that... And the reason why it sort of it, it means so much to me is that I was an only child, and when my parents were divorcing, uh, I was brought up in England. And when I left England, I uh, went to Ireland with my mom, and I went to Cork. And this is in the the sort of mid to late eighties, when the relations between Ireland and the UK were very testy. And I obviously had an English accent, mm-hmm. and I felt like an alien myself. And also, I used to wear my underpants outside my clothes, and I don't know why people were like <laughs> throwing rocks at me. But I would sort of lose myself in movies, um, but especially Superman the movie. And for some reason, just that movie just became the elixir and the balm that just made me feel happy. And um, to this day, when I'm writing something, I try to tap into what that film did for me, that sort of that joy that it gave me and right for that kid that that other kid that's out there that is sitting down and wow. needs that sort of escape and needs that sort of sort of injected into their veins who are you a friend Bye. christopher reeve he was a special effect himself that one shot where he first when he's in the fortress of solitude 
and he takes off. You know, it's a it's a lot it's a long shot and he takes off and it's just one shot, it's a locked in shot and he he flies. Colin Chilvers, uh, who was the, the guy that won the Academy Award for that, he was like the creative supervisor and the director of special effects on it. Uh, he said, you know, because they filmed the first two films back to back. So they were filming for about 18 months. This was like Lord of the Rings style. Wow. They were constantly dealing with technical issues, but they did that shot. And it was that moment of, of Christopher Reeve um, banking as he flew out of the Fortress of Solitude. And it just lifted everybody's spirits. And from that moment on, they felt like renewed to sort of carry the film home. It, it's fulfilling the promise of the, the movie tagline. You know, you'll believe a man can fly. And when he takes off, the, you know, it was a lot of effort and a lot of engineering to really figure out how to create the illusion of Christopher Reeve Superman flying. And that one shot sells it. That one shot today, still today, is magic. But it's not my pick. Oh. I chose for my favourite special effects scene in all of movie history, there was only one choice really, and it is the three-titted woman from Total Recall. (laughs) The tree moved. I thought that was incredible, and it's still, I think about it still to this day. Sure you do. It's like, how did they do it? (laughs) <laughs> and why did evolution require a third breast? They're all connected. What the fuck? What was what was evolution? And why did I put it there and not like underneath the other one? It just seems uh, it seems a bit awkward. Uh, no, my pick gave us a master filmmaker. I gave him free reign, and he has given us so many classics. When I think about magic happening on set. When I think about difficulty and pulling something off, it is one of the greatest villains in all of movie history. The one, the only, the almighty Jaws. You went with Bruce from Jaws. Oh my my God. (laughs) I did. And the scene that I went with is uh, the famous scene. It's the first time that the shark appears on camera where we get to see him. Michael's in the pond. And it's a pivotal scene in the movie because it's the moment when Brody, who's our protagonist, is coming face to face with his own failings as a man. You know, from the first scene, he pegs it straight away and it says it's a shark attack. But he comes to Amity to uh, make a difference, but he lacks conviction and he doesn't follow through on his gut instincts. So he can't really be much of a a hero if he doesn't do the thing that he knows to be right. And it's in that moment, you know, it's the most crucial moment for me in screenwriting is the midpoint. It's when, as we say in screenwriting terms, it's the point of no return where the the character, the protagonist can never go back to their old world. It's like things have changed now and they've changed fundamentally. And it's at that moment where that's when we get our first visual of the shark itself when it kills the instructor. Comes inches within uh, taking his own son. He's dead. No, he's not. He's in shock. And it's after that moment where, you know, Brody does that slow look out to the ocean and he knows that even as a man who's afraid of the water, he has to go out there and he has to he has to face his, his greatest fears. Because otherwise, uh, he won't make a difference. The 
the, the shark works so well or the effect of the shark works so well when we kind of get all these shadowy kind of like suggestions of just how big and just how fierce it is mm. you know another example is like the the boys that they shoot into its um, skin and they just like pop up out of the ocean to indicate that that it's there and like it's a practical effect but it's a, it's obviously a cut around. It's like a, the the actual shark didn't work, so they had to say, well, how can we actually get around not having a shark that doesn't work? This is where you know that that is um, a fake shark, and they even make that joke of it in Back to the Future Two, where it's like uh, the shark still looks fake. <laughs> but um, yeah, the shark looks fake, but the shark is there, and you feel yeah. it. I think you're absolutely right, and when they when they, yeah, that that's the key thing, and it, it kind of taps into a primordial. Uh, fear in us and in those shots where it's moving and as you can see the shape of it it is moving under the water it triggers something in us and it just really bloody works when you think of like special effects scenes that is the one which is probably the hardest to pull off building like a 25 foot model sinking it in the New England ocean and getting it to work with the weather and the, the ocean currents and what have you it just it's remarkable what they pulled off. Smile, you son of a bitch! There we go. So, um, now oh, I gotta man. spin the wheel for you, Will, and uh, figure out what your scene's gonna be for next week. You know what I just remembered? I, I have a veto in my back pocket here. It's just it's just burning a hole in my back. Okay, skip week. Yeah. <laughs> So I just, my veto, yeah, I'm just not re- recording a podcast next week. I'll bring Dan back. Dan, Dan's my favourite. Dan, watch yourself. <laughs> Kevin's all mine. <laughs> back off, Dan. Okay, here we go. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. And it is... Oh, this is a really weird one. Okay. Uh, it's best... <laughs> It's best Alan Smithy scene. Okay, so what? Alan Smith, Alan Smithy scene. So the non the plume of the director who's taken his name uh, uh, off the film. That's the name that people use when they don't want to be associated with the film because the film is so bad that the director oh, wants man. to take their name off it. But you know what? That should be. You know, actually, you know, sometimes when you get out, sometimes when you get the topic you want to get, you go. It's actually a nightmare because there's too much to pick from. But then when you get a topic that you really go, I don't know what to do with that, it actually turns out to be great because it's there's a very limited number of films to pick from. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I love the fact that I haven't got a clue where I'm going with this. And um, yeah, this is going to be fun. This is Okay, Will, where can people find you? And where can people find us? People can find me and us on Twitter mainly. Um, I'm under Willem's Film, W-I-L-L-U-M-S-F-I-L-L-U-M. And we're also under the Best Bits pod. Isn't that right, Kevin? It's not us on Twitter? That's right. And I'm on Twitter under uh, at Kevin Lee Han. But also for all those that are listening and that are enjoying the podcast so far, rate us and review us on your podcast provider of choice uh, because it really, really helps us get the word out about the podcast. And um, it sort of like triggers the, the algorithms and then it gets recommended to other people. So if you're enjoying it, share the podcast with those that you think might like it as well. Uh, doing us a huge favour and uh, yeah so until next week until next best week best Alan Smitty scene Alan Smitty I'm just I'm going to interview Alan Smitty for next week <laughs> just going to, I'm going to find a random Alan Smitty in, a, in, in a non-existent phone book and call him and say so you got a, you've an interesting catalogue well 
I am great at impressions, so if you need me to pretend to be Alan Smitty, <laughs> okay. just say the word. Okay. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> the pipes, the pipes are calling. The Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review. All that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lads' latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um. Don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't you throw what? <laughs> oh my god. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best place we can Van Willem talking deviantly. <laughs> okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing. Because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh in emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time fuck it that'll do because it's bound to be funny in his eyes so yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the podbot one like nobody was giving me any reaction to it and oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet and then of yeah. course I was delighted with that and people hated it <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice so there was no up and down that's the thing yeah I know I tried my best you're a bug and I'm a feature pray to this mantis or I'll eat you and if you don't know my name here's an update to teach you I'm I'm, I'm Hogus and I'm the future an AI podcasting computer the number one zero one zero zero one one producer that's exactly it. Did you do? So, Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God, I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best Kevin Willem, about the telly and the latest film. Talking shit the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage, That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could happen. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about should I start the timer? Is this, have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare okay. to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster. Oh, very recently, it went. There's a Madam Web film, and I'm what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent 
Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they do Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought... I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. We feel like uh, yes. there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue, to the hairstyles, to the costumes, to the sets, to the music, to everything just feels... It's artificial, wafer-thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction. You no protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh, yeah. wow, I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay on the whole it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them yet I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times it was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects whether they're good or bad you know I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it so I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but they've almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Kathy was pushing back and... I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Catty here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I liked Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector 
is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. (laughs) 